Of course, all the way through the book of Romans, the word righteous does not mean justification. For when we present, as it says in chapter 6, our hands, our members to deeds of righteousness, we're using the same word, but we're not talking about justification now. We're talking about doing things that are right. We equate justification with salvation. That is a wrong equation. We say, are you saved? Well, the word saved is broader. The word justification is a little more narrow. Justification is a part of ultimate salvation, but it is not to be equated with salvation. Salvation is broader. And if we say, as I said as a very young child to someone in my yard, I asked him, are you saved? And he said, saved from what? Well, what would you answer? R.C. Sproul's written a book that's called Saved from What? And uh, his contention is, we're not saved from the devil, we're saved from the wrath of God. But salvation is, again, it's, it's, it's broader in context. And to the answer the question of what one is saved to, one has to answer the question, what one has lost. We're going to talk about that this morning in conjunction with Romans chapter 8. And so this morning, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time perusing the scripture. You can shut your eyes and pay attention. And if you've been reading through your Bible year by year, you'll be able to follow. If you haven't, it will be a little more difficult. We're not going to take time to read them. I'm going to assume you know the history. Now, in Romans chapter 8, we were discussing last week. In fact, why don't you turn to Romans chapter 8, and we'll just uh, read that one little section. Romans chapter 8. I didn't get through everything. I don't want to repeat everything. But if you would look at verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, it says... And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his word. Now, I want to change the translation. You're going to have to trust me. I do know my Greek. I can do this. And it's permissible. Listen. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good by those who love him, who love God, to those who, by those who are called according to his purpose, or listen to another way. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good with those who love God, with those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we know that God can just speak and it happens. We know that. He doesn't need any help, and ultimately, he's the cause behind everything. Nevertheless, he employs means. So he could just speak into somebody's ear, and they would trust him. He could do that, but he doesn't do it that way. He uses you to speak into somebody's ear, his word, and then he opens their heart so they trust in him. God works by means. 
And one of the means that God works by in this whole recreation is people. We were looking at that Roman in Romans chapter 8. And we saw a little bit of a picture of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt, delivered from bondage, crossing the Red Sea, going into the wilderness, and then being led by the Spirit of God with that glory cloud that was hovering over them, a fire by night, a cloud by day. And when the cloud moved, they moved. And when the cloud stood still, they stood still and camped. And that cloud led them all through the wilderness land for 40 years and then brought them to the Jordan River and they crossed over. And crossing over, they conquered the land of Canaan and it became theirs. That's the picture here in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. That's that picture, being led. And then you come on down to verse 17, and it says, If you're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed you suffer with him, that you may be co-glorified with him. And we were looking in that at verses 18 and following, actually verses 18 through 27. And we were discovering, now what that is talking about is creation coming out of its slavery to corruption in the revelation of the sons of God. And when you hear the word sons of God, of course, you have to think Adam. He's the first son of God, the sons of God. And then they'll be set free. And we moved on down through chapter 8 and came to this little section that we're reading here. Let me read it again. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good by those who love God, by those who are called according to his purpose, because whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image, which is his son, that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So when you see the word, we've been talking about the sons of God, you think sons of God, what do you think of? Well, here he picks it up, he tells us, image, image, image. Image goes all the way back to Genesis 1, where God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, being led out of Egypt, going to the promised land, conquering the promised land, Israel is being made into the image of God. But now, of course, Paul is only using that as an illusion. He's talking about us. We've been led out of sin We've been baptized into Christ, and we're being led about by the Spirit to conquer what? Israel conquered, we conquer too. The world, in this case, it's talking about the new creation. And we are being conformed to the image of his Son, that his Son might be the firstborn among many brethren, which is most likely a reference reference to his resurrection from the dead. So look at it once again. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to become conformed to the image, which is his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined. These he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And remember, we said this is called the golden chain, the unbreakable chain, and all these things have happened to us. God foreknew us, God predestined us, God called us, God justified us, and then we make a little switch, even though it's, it's not legitimate in the Greek, we make it, we say, and he will glorify us. Not that we have, but it's so certain that it's written in the past tense. No, the truth of the matter is we've been conformed to his image. He has glorified us. And this runs as a theme through the book of Romans. Even though they knew God, they decided not to glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for one like four-footed, uh, excuse me, for one like corruptible man, four-footed animal, birds, and creeping things, which takes us back to Genesis. What glory did they exchange? They exchanged the glory God gave them. The glory that Psalm 8 tells us. You made him just a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. And you put all things under his hands. Under his feet, I should say. You subjected everything to him. Of course, Adam, oh, in one sense, threw that away. When he decided to listen to the voice of a beast, the beast that was subject to him as an image bearer of God, he subjected himself to that beast. And so man's glory has shrunk ever since. And the Bible is just about this glory. This is one way to put it. I'm not suggesting it's the only way. I am suggesting it's a way we're going to look at it because we are dealing with the subject of social justice. You wouldn't know that yet, except I've told you that. And what we want to come to see is, no matter what's going on around us, we are the ecclesia, the assembly. And the assembly is in charge of what happens in McKinney not the mayor, not the board. No, ultimately, it's us. That's why prayer is so important. We're in charge. And it's this glory that's been restored to us, not in its fullness, that's for sure. That will come when Jesus returns. But it is restored to us. Now, I want to show you a little bit about this, but you have to, now we're going to just do a little perusal through the Bible. To understand uh, what man is being saved from and saved to, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. To understand about man, you need an anthropology. And to understand anthropology, you have to understand creation. 
So when we go all the way back to the beginning, as I already quoted, God said, let us make man in our image. And then he goes on to say, and let him rule over the fish of the seas and the birds of the sky and the cattle and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God made he him male and female made he them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion and rule over it. When God created man, he put him in a, in a garden. And he said to man, all these trees around you and all these plants that yield seed and grow and bear fruit, I've given them to you to eat. So there in the garden, Adam was allowed to eat from any of the trees except one, and he was invited to eat from the tree of life. And instead, he and his wife ate from the tree, which they were not allowed to eat from at that point. So this whole Eden place was Adam's and Eve's to rule and to work and to grow food and to enjoy the presence of God. And on every Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, Adam would be invited to come into the garden sanctuary and there eat a meal with God. But when the day came, Adam had already sinned. And so Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. What did they lose? Well, one could say they lost a relationship with God. That's true, they did. But what they lost is the way you know in part relationship. What do you do? You sit down at a table with your family and your friends, and you enjoy food and you fellowship. That's what they lost. Now they're thrust out. And now they're still going to subdue the earth. I mean, after all, we started with Adam and Eve, and now we've got 7.6 billion people on the earth. They've, uh, mankind has filled this whole earth, and mankind has ruled over it and subdued it. But, of course, our rule is subject to the problem of sin. Our rule is affected by our sin. And when Adam and Eve were thrust out, no longer could they come on the Sabbath day into the garden sanctuary and eat with God. What did they lose? They lost relationship, fellowship with God, and that's what the rest of the Bible is going to present, what Christ gained for them. So over here, they lost fellowship. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and you come all the way down to the book of Revelations. I won't walk off the stage this week. Come all the way down to the book of Revelation, and you get to chapters 21 and 22. Where have you arrived? Well, you've arrived in a city. The city's called the wife of the Lamb. And this city has a throne in it. And from the throne flows water. And there's a golden street going down the city. And either side of the street, there are fruit trees, 12 fruit trees. 
And these fruit trees bear leaves and fruit for the healing of the nation. Over here, they lost Sabbath rest with God eating at his table. And over here, when you get to the end, they regained it. Now, do not take this as me making a slight, but do understand it doesn't talk about justification by faith at the end of Revelation. Justification by faith is essential. But what man lost was dining with God. Now, when you think about Genesis all the way down to Revelation, food is totally essential. And, you know, you love food, right? So it's not a problem to think your way through this. So in the book of Genesis, man becomes very corrupt, and God decides to destroy mankind off the face of the earth. And the flood came, and man was destroyed except for Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. And they moved in an ark from death to life. And the ark settled on a mountain, and finally they got off the ark. And what did he do? Noah built an altar and made a sacrifice. Now, you have to understand, in the Bible, an altar is a table. It's a table where you eat. If you don't believe me, then you need to look in Ezekiel chapter 41 and verse 22 and Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 16. It's God's table. He eats there. And he, at some point, invites us to come and dine with him. But when Noah got off the ark and he made this sacrifice, and these sacrifices were ascensions, they were burned up and they ascended up to God, he ate nothing. But God consumed it all. God ate it off the altar, so to speak. And then Noah did, they lost a garden. Noah planted a garden. And he grew, he grew vines. And he did not become drunk. He drank fully, but he was not drunk. Now again, you're going to have to believe me. Hebrew uses the same word for both drunk and satisfied. And when Noah built this garden and the Noahic covenant was given, what happened? He was given rule over all the animals, and now he's given a sword, his rulership, Adam's rule, has been extended. Now, when someone kills somebody, murders, now Noah has the right to inflict punishment. From there, we move on to one of the most important parts of the Bible, and that is to Abraham. And Abraham was an altar builder. The places he went to, he built altars. Remember, altars are tables. And in Genesis chapter 12, 
he came into the land and he built an altar and then he moved to uh, uh, between Bethel and Ai and he built, it another, uh, built another altar, then he went down into Egypt and he came back to the altar and he divided the land with Lot and then he became a conqueror and conquered that land and he built yet another altar. But of course, the most important altar that Abraham built was the altar where he sacrificed his son. Well, he was going to, but God stopped him. And he had wood, and he had fire, and he had his son laid out, and he was going to kill him. And what was his son? His son was an ascension. He was going to be burned up. It's an altar. It's where God eats. So God would have taken Isaac into himself. That's the language that's used. God eats. But God stopped him and a substitute was given. Now, still, if we say, and of course, we can't prove it, I can show you some chronologies that would suggest it from the Bible, but if creation happened in 4000 B.C., and Abraham comes along about mm, 1875 or something like that. BC. You can see that there's been uh, 2,000 plus years that God has not eaten with man since the Garden of Eden. But what happened in uh, the book of Genesis is uh, something happened to Abraham that becomes essential. Abraham was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Well, now, this is something that's picking up a thought in the book of Genesis. Because all the way back here, when it says in chapter 6 that man was utterly corrupt, and God said, I'm going to remove man, flesh, from the face of the earth. From the flood in Genesis all the way to chapter 17, flesh is not remembered, not spoken again, until the flesh of the foreskin. So flesh was so corrupt, they were cut out of life. Now in Abraham and his descendants, the flesh is cut away from them to show what? They're corrupt, but they're not going to operate by corruption. Now, that's important. We'll see as we move along in the story. The next big altar event happens in the book of Exodus. When Israel comes out of Egypt and they go out to Mount Sinai, and then there is erected this bronze altar at the foot of the mountain. It's where Moses gets the blueprints for the tabernacle with the bronze altar that's going to be in front of the tabernacle. Remember, a table where God eats. And we'll see in a minute, man's going to eat too. So this altar was put up. Abraham built many altars. Moses built one. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, we discover that offerings were made, but now they're not ascensions. I'm not suggesting there were no more ascension offerings. There were. Now they're peace 
offerings. And you know the story of how the 70 elders went halfway up the mountain and they looked up at the pavement above them where they could see something of God and they ate peace offerings. A table was spread and they ate from it. Now, Israel is this nation and to be a part of the nation Ecclesia, you have to be circumcised. The flesh has to be torn away to show that you're going to live by spirit, not by flesh. And so Israel, of course, they had their problems. And uh, they had such great problems that God decided to destroy the generation that came out of Egypt from 20 years old and up. And he did destroy them. They wanted around 40 years for that to take place. And then it was time to move into the promised land. And they crossed the Jordan. And what's the first thing they did? Oh, yeah. They circumcised the new generation. All those who had not been circumcised in the wilderness for 40 years were all circumcised. Just as God removed the flesh of wickedness in the flood. Now those who have had flesh removed from them so that they operate in spirit go into the land of Canaan and now not using water but using men. I've put all things under subjection under your feet. He killed off all the wicked Canaanites. Well, Israel didn't quite get the job done, but that's what they were doing there. And from there, they came into the land, and they settled in the land, and finally, they made a permanent structure, the temple. And that permanent structure had a bronze altar, and that bronze altar was uh, erected by Solomon, and Solomon offered thousands and thousands of sacrifices on that bronze altar. And what happened? Man ate with God. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 16 tells us that when they finally got settled in the land and they had their feasts where they eat with God, they eat peace offerings with God. God gets part, the priest gets part, and the worshiper gets part. When they got settled into the land, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 11 through 14, now they could invite strangers to come eat with God. So here's this Israel nation with people all around, and foreigners come into the land, and they also get to eat with God. The bronze altar was erected in the days of uh, Solomon. And uh, in conjunction with that, now I'm, now I'm taking a parenthetical thought here because uh, not everyone would agree with me. In fact, I'll have to say most everyone doesn't agree with me. But remember, I'm always right. Ha, ha, ha. Ecclesiastes. Koheleth, the preacher. I believe it was written for the dedication of the temple. And the book of Ecclesiastes is about what? Well, it seems a little pessimistic in the end. 
but if you divide it into its four sections, it's about eating. What can a man do under the sun? Well, he can eat and he can drink and he can enjoy the good gift of God, which is exactly what was happening at this new bronze altar with this new dedicated temple at the Feast of Booths. Man and God sat down and ate at table together. And if you work your way through the prophets, then this is filled out. Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4 talk about all the nations coming up to the temple, to Jerusalem, to hear the word of God and to follow him. This takes us back, I forgot to mention, in the importance of Abraham. Through Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now you see that in the prophets. And they come up and they eat with God. And you think about Isaiah chapter 25. They come and they eat fat portions of meat and aged fine wine they drink with God. And you come to Zechariah chapter 14. There's another section where they're coming and it is the, the, uh, the Feast of Booths again. So all these Gentiles are flocking in. That's where the Old Testament takes us. But of course, that comes to completion in the person of Christ. Now, mind you, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, where God builds a garden for Adam, where he gets to eat with God. This was lost. This is what man lost. He lost relationship with God. He lost the ability to rule correctly. He's still ruling, but he's not doing it well. And so this whole thing is tracing, the whole scripture is tracing how God is making a way for man to come back and dine with him. The very thing we do Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we do something that brings us back to the garden and then looks forward to the ultimate consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what's completed in Jesus. So when you come to the Gospels, what do you discover? Well, John came not eating and not drinking. And Jesus came eating and drinking. You work your way through the Gospels, and in the Gospels, Jesus is always eating people with people. He's eating with prostitutes, and he's eating with tax collectors, and he's eating with Pharisees, and he, he tells a feast about his father, when the prodigal comes home, and in Matthew chapter 8, he talks about the, all the Gentiles coming in with faith, like the centurion who sit at the table of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, where the sons are on the outside looking in. The Jewish people don't, don't get to eat. This is what Jesus is talking about, eating. Now, John came fasting, Jesus came eating. John came baptizing, Jesus partly baptized. Remember I said in the ecclesia of a Roman colony, in the ruling body, there were initiation rites to get into the assembly. So in the church, you want to sit down and eat with God? Well, you have to get in. And how do you get in? Now, don't take me wrong here. 
You get in via baptism. Now, that's not to say you don't have to believe. Of course you have to believe. But it is baptism that is the entrance into the church. Romans chapter 6 tells us that, having been buried with him in baptism. Matthew chapter 28 tells us, here's how you make disciples. Go make disciples. It doesn't say preaching. Of course, preaching's got to be behind there. It doesn't say that they believe. Of course, believing has to be behind there. But you know, we're people who believe in inspiration of the Scripture. And we know that every word of Scripture is what God wants there. And every word that's not there is what God doesn't want there. And so he says to the disciples, go make disciples. How do you do it? Baptizing and teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. So we see that. And we come to the book of Acts, and that's exactly how things happen. The apostles, on the day of Pentecost, they baptized 3,000 souls in one day. And then Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, and Peter baptized Cornelius' house, and, and he saw that these people had received the Spirit, how could he refuse baptism? And uh, Lydia was baptized, and the Philippian jailer and his family were baptized. In the book, you can see baptism is a big theme. Why? Because in baptism, you're admitted into the church. Now, some people say, wait, 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 God's the one who admits. I, I certainly would not deny that. But remember, we talked about means, means. So Jesus says to the apostles, he says to the apostles, the sins of those you remit, they're remitted. The sins of those you retain, they're retained. Now, that makes our skin crawl. Can a man forgive sin? Well, of course, Mark 2 tells us, no, only God can forgive sin. But God uses means. And so when you go talk to somebody and you give them the gospel and you see that they trust Christ, you say to them, your sins are forgiven. Did you forgive them? Well, not really. You're just a spokesman. You're the hands and feet and the voice and the eyes of Jesus. That's what happened. So all through Acts. People are admitted to the church by baptism. They come in. They're united with Christ and with one another. You see it all the way through Acts. That's a theme. Now they're in the ecclesia. And in the ecclesia, you have a meal. It's called the Lord's Supper. Who gets to eat at the Lord's Supper? Only the baptized. Only the baptized eat at the Lord's Supper. And so you see it in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, they were together in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayer. And when you listen to Paul from 1 
Corinthians 11, you get the impression this is why they gather to eat. It's not the, for the Lord's Supper you get together. They're supposed to get together for the Lord's Supper. Where does that take us back to? It takes us back all the way to creation. What was Adam going to do? He was going to eat with God every seventh day on the Sabbath day. But he threw it away. Now Jesus has regained it for those who have come to faith in him and have been admitted into the church via baptism. And so we have, we call them, our tradition calls them ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are other Protestant traditions that use the word sacramental. Again, that makes a lot of people's skin crawl. Ordinances emphasizes the idea that they're simply symbolic. Sacrament suggests something really happens. So when you take a person and you, this is the way it happens at McKinney Bible Church, we push them down along and say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We say, well, that is a picture of his faith. He decided to be baptized. That's not how Matthew puts it. You make disciples, you baptize them. In other words, I'm not saying apart from faith. Don't hear me saying that. When you push them down, you bring them up and say, you're baptizing them. You have just put them into the name of Jesus Christ, into the body of Christ. They're part of the ecclesia, the church. And the church reigns. The church rules. And the church has a meal with God every Lord's day. Now, this meal and this baptism, they have certain things that go with them. God's word goes with them. So you make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. So everybody who gets the name of Christ, they were first called Christians in Antioch by the observers. Everybody who gets the name of Christ is now discipled, taught how Christ lives, how we live. After all, we're the brothers and sisters of Christ. God the Father is our Father. We're in the divine family. We live certain ways. And if someone does not live like that, they get a correction. And if they persist in living like that, they get a final correction where they're removed from the church. And even at the table, we come and we say, well, everybody who eats at the table, they can't be a swindler, they can't be a reviler, they can't be an idolater, they cannot be an adulterer, they cannot be a drunkard. They're removed. Because with these two Ordinances, sacraments, comes God's word. And the word is the word of God that tells us, okay, anybody who has the name of Jesus Christ, anybody who's part of the ecclesia, anybody who eats at this table, you have to grow up and live right. It takes us all the way back to the garden. Adam here, here's food for you to eat. You're just not allowed to do this. 
Adam does it, so he's thrown out. Now, in Christ, in Christ, it's been regained for us. This does work its way down to social justice, by the way. Not today, though. So, what we're seeing in Romans, then, as you trace all the way through Romans, Man gave up his glory. Man falls short of the glory of God. We're not talking about some splendid flashing light, the glory of God. We're talking about the glory God gave to man. They fall short of it. Why? Because of sin. But in Christ, we're brought back. And when we come to faith in Christ, we're baptized. Suddenly, we walk around with the name of Christ on us. We're his disciples. We live like him. We talk like him. We do like him. We love his word. And now we got the name of Christ on us. Then we come to the table. And at the table, we sit and eat with God at his altar. It's a table. And at this table, we eat the body and the blood. Now, clearly, it's bread and wine. Is not the cup that we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So something's happening at the table. We eat bread, we drink wine, Somehow, just as God eats us, we eat God. Not, not literally. The way I like to say it is the benefits of Christ's death are applied to us at the table. We feast. I like the way Thomas Aquinas says it because it makes a good point. Natural bread, when eaten, becomes part of of the eater. Spiritual bread, when eaten, turns the eater into itself. That is, we eat the supper and we become Christ-like. Now, we're part of the church. We have the food of the garden. We're kings at the table. Like Jesus said to his disciples, I've been granted a kingdom, and I grant you to eat at my table, and you'll be judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. You'll be kings. We eat at the king's table. We become like the king. We're part of the ecclesia. You ask somebody in McKinney, who runs McKinney? Well, who does run McKinney? Well, the mayor and the city council and all the people go to the meetings and we the voters. Well, not me because I don't live in the city of McKinney. You ask a Christian, who runs McKinney? Well, the church does. The church does. Those he foreknew, he predestined. 
to become conformed to the image, which is his son, who rules and reigns, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he's predestined, he's called. Those he's called, he's glorified. Now, our rule and reign is nothing like it will be when Christ returns. But nevertheless, we sit at God's table. We bear his name. We're part of his ruling group on earth. That's why in Romans 8, well, the whole earth is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God that they might be set free from corruption to, to a slavery to corruption. And we, yeah, yeah, even we groan, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Oh, oh yeah, and remember, the spirit groans. What are we all groaning for? Well, it's quite clear in Romans 8 what we're groaning for. We're groaning for salvation. Oh, we have it. It's ours, but it hasn't been fully realized yet. And, and so part, part of that salvation is we rule and reign, and we don't know how to do that very well yet. And so we pray. We don't even know what to pray. That's where the Spirit comes along and he helps our weaknesses with words, he's groaning, with words that cannot even be heard. But the one who searches the hearts of men knows the mind of the Spirit because he prays according to God's will. Well, it's past time to quit, but think about this. There's all kinds of issues floating out there now, and the problems, not so much in the lost world, that's a problem. The problem is the church wants to bring social justice inside the church. But you see, the church has baptized people who have been taught to keep what the Lord says. And the church has people who sit at his table and the ones that sit at his table cannot be revilers, swindlers, drunkards, adulterers. Can't be any of those things. Well, next week we'll move into social justice with this one thought. Man's foolish heart was darkened. He became foolish in his thinking. By the time you get to Romans chapter 12, then our thinking is service-oriented. Who's going to fix things up? Who can help out? Well, certainly not lost people so much because their thinking's messed up. But in baptism, with the teaching of God's word, and at the table with the teaching of God's word, we know how to think. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that everything is Christocentric. When we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ. We die with him and we rise again. Baptism is all about Christ. When we sit and relax at your table, we take the food 
which is called Christ. This is my body. This is my blood. There's no room in this ecclesia for arrogance. There's no room for unbelief. There's no room for sin. There's no room for resistance because it's all Christ. He's done it all for us. And He's the one who is bringing us back to what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And for that, we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.